please turn with me to today's passage in your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 17. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the top of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every with you, every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings unto the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, 
from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. We just sang the song, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We talk a lot about grace in the church, and and so we should. And the grace of God is most clearly seen against the backdrop of who He is. He's holy. The grace of God is most clearly seen against the backdrop of who He is and who we are. We're sinners. We've rebelled against Him. We deserve judgment. This morning, as we continue in our series through the book of Genesis, we see amazing grace shown to Noah and those who are with him. And we're going to talk about how this points us ahead to the grace that we have in Christ. So if you're not already there, turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through verse 17 of chapter 9. Again, Genesis chapter 8. To set this in context, last week you might recall that we left off at the picture of a worldwide flood of judgment. The reason for judgment was made very clear in the text. It was the sinfulness of man. And the punishment fit the crime, right? Men were completely wicked, much like today. Every intention, the thoughts of their heart, only evil continually. And God's judgment was all-encompassing. By the time we got to the end of the passage, we saw the waters rising. We saw all flesh die, right? There was no escaping. All flesh every animal, all mankind, and Noah and his family and the animals on the ark floating along. That's where we ended, which makes the first two words of chapter 8 so very beautiful. 
We left with judgment. Nothing survived. Noah and his family floating seemingly aimlessly on the water. And chapter 8, verse 1 begins, but God. But God. Which are two of the most beautiful words in the entire Bible. You might think of Ephesians 2, where we're told even post-flood that all men outside of faith in Christ are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, Paul says, amazing grace. Ephesians 2 does the same thing as Genesis 8. But God, Ephesians 2 continues, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. These two words in the context of judgment are absolutely glorious. They alert the reader to the reality that God is working out his plan. God is on top of things. Here, the world was in utter rebellion against God, rejecting him as king, fighting with each other, killing others made in his image. It was a proverbial train wreck. Thus, God wipes out the world through the flood with the exception of those on the boat. Here, we see a quiet world. Every single earth-dwelling animal, including human beings, blotted out by God in judgment through this massive flood. And the ark is just there floating along, and we read, but God. Specifically, we read, but God remembered Noah. And we need to make sure we're understanding what's going on here. It's not as though God was so focused on judgment and he was so focused on all that was going on there that he sort of forgot about Noah. And it's like, oh, whoops, I forgot. And he then remembered. It's not that. This is covenant language. This is kind of language you see throughout the scriptures. It's language that indicates that God is about to work on somebody's behalf. He's going to fulfill a promise. And thus, with judgment complete, God brings this episode to a glorious and gracious end as he works out the salvation of eight people. Here, God puts an end to the flood and begins to lower the waters slowly but surely until you get down to verses 16 through 19, where God commands Noah and all those who were with him to get out of the ark. And once again, we see that he obeys. You could say it like this, if last week was put before us as the decreation of the world in judgment, which I think Moses is doing, this text then should be understood as the recreation of the whole world. And this is clear as the reader sees the language that Moses is using. Look, look with me at just a few of the ways we see this idea of recreation in this text. I have them there on your outline. In verse 1, we see that God remembered Noah and all who were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the water subsided. And I should point out that in the original Hebrew, the same word, ruach, is used both for spirit and wind, and context has to show us how to understand it. Here there seems to be an echo back to Genesis 1-2, 
Starting in Genesis 1.1, you'll recall we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. Remember when we covered Genesis 1, we said that when God created the world, it was formless and void, and then God, in six days of creation, spoke various things into existence with the first three days getting it ready for life, and the second three days filling it up with life. So the picture in Genesis 1-2 is the Spirit of God hovering at some point over a great ball of water. The waters covered the whole earth. It was formless and void. And so too here in Genesis 8, in judgment, and by means of the flood, God decreated the world, taking it back to that formless and void state. And here we see the Spirit of God again over the waters. Only this time it's clear that the Spirit of God brings about a great wind to blow over the face of the waters to make the water subside. Additionally, we see in verse 2 that God closed off the fountains of the deep and the windows from heaven. Remember last week in chapter 7, verse 11, God opened these up, right? He opened up the fountains of the deep and the windows from heaven as an act of judgment. Here now, with judgment complete, he closes these same waters off. Once again, separating dry land from the waters. It takes time in this instance, but that's what's going on here. First, the tops of the mountains become visible. Then more and more until the dry land is completely separated from the waters. Finally, as in the creation account, when God creates the animals, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Here, as God is recreating the world, he uses some of the very same language, making it clear that every beast, every creeping thing, every bird went out in families similar to, according to their kinds, and they go out to repopulate the whole earth. And the point of all of this is God is starting over. Noah is the new Adam, as it were. Oh, we're still post-fall, as we'll see momentarily. So God's not taking the earth back to its pre-fall state. But the earth will now be populated by Noah and his lineage, who we mustn't forget in the narrative is in the line of Seth, and thus God's promise to send one from the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, to overturn the curse. That promise is still intact, which is so important because that's what this whole narrative is about. By the way, we talked about this last week. Some want to look at this text, Noah and the great big boat, and say it didn't really happen, right? This worldwide flood, it didn't happen. It's just a parable for something. It's it's just here to paint a picture of judgment. And last week I showed us that we absolutely can't say that because the New Testament writers, including Jesus, take this narrative as historical fact. And here, and I'm going to move through this quickly, but I want to point out some of the amazing detail in this account with regards to very specific dates and times pointing to the fact that Moses, our writer, is giving us a detailed account of a real historical event. And as clear as this is to us sitting here reading it, this stuck out all the more to the original readers because this kind of precision was not the norm in ancient Near Eastern literature. If we back up to last week's text, we're reminded that the dating of this narrative pivots off of Noah's age. And again, I'm just going to run through this really quickly. So, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, the flood began. 
so chapter 7, verse 11. By the way, there's two Hebrew calendars, and some, you know, get into discussions as to which one it is. It doesn't really matter. This works regardless. Uh, We're told in 7.12, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Waters prevailed and began to abate for 150 days. That's 7.24 and 8.3, and the 40 days, 40 nights fits into that. The 17th day of the seventh month, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Just listen. I mean, these are specific. First day of the 10th month, mountaintop scene. Then you add another 40 days, and Moses sends out a raven and a dove. Seven days later, we're told he sends out a dove again. Seven days later, he sends out a dove yet again. This time it doesn't return. The first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the waters are gone. So waters are gone on New Year's, whatever calendar we're dealing with, but still no command to get off the boat. Don't really know why. But then on the 27th day of the second month, God commands Noah to exit. So we're talking about one year and 11 days in the ark, a grand total of 370 to 376 days in the ark, depending on which calendar is being used, which points to the historicity of this narrative as Moses is wanting to show you this really happened. He's saying this really happened and it happened just like this. But what's more, I think all of this again highlights Noah's obedience to God. And I say that because consider the end of the narrative here. just, 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 Just think about this for a second. But by the new year, the text says that the waters are gone. And Noah's already been in the boat for almost a year. Now, I can't imagine that he didn't want to get out of there, right? I mean, I think he would have been real tempted to say, hey, guys, the water is gone. Like, I'm, I'm out. I, I, I got to get off of this. I got to stretch my legs. I, I got to go explore. I got to do something. I mean, he would have been cooped up in this boat for over a year with his wife, three sons, their wives, and Let me remind you, this is post-fall, so I suspect there would have probably been some tension from time to time, not to mention all the animals, all the smells, I mean, all the stuff going on. And yet, Noah obeys. He stays in the ark until the 27th day of the second month. He stays in the ark until he gets the command from God to get out. And we want to focus on what Noah does when he gets off the ark. Because if you follow the flow of the narrative, what we find in chapter 9 really pivots off of what we see when Noah gets off the boat. So look back at the text. Consider all this time on this boat. Consider what he, what we might have wanted to do getting off of the boat. But when you look at the text, you see Noah worships His heart and mind so riveted on God and His gracious salvation through this flood. After being on this boat for over a year, He gets off and the text says that He builds an altar to the Lord and He sacrifices burnt offerings. Specifically, He sacrifices some of every clean animal. And we need to dig in a bit here because in the flow of the narrative, it's as though You know, he's been focused on the flood, and it's as though he sort of pans out from the flood, and now he zooms in on this worship. He zooms in on these sacrifices. 
Noah gets off the ark. And the first thing he does, we're told, is he builds an altar. He offers burnt offerings of some of all the clean animals that were on board this great boat. And while this offering was almost certainly a thanksgiving offering for God's gracious deliverance of judgment from judgment, we must be clear that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see that these offerings were also an act of atonement. And I get that because of the careful language being used here. If you look back at verses 20 to 21, you see that Noah took what we're told is clean animals. We're told that he offered them up, and very specifically, that they were burnt offerings. In verse 22, Moses says that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that's important. When he smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, even though the intention of his heart is still evil from his youth. And we'll come back to that latter part of verse 21. But given our basic Old Testament illiteracy, I think it's important for us to try our best to hear a passage like this the way the original hearers would have heard it, who, by the way, received Genesis along with the rest of the Pentateuch, right? They received this book of five, so they received Genesis with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so, if you would, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Here we read, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, and shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement. Him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is in the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So, so here in Leviticus, the burnt offering which Moses tells us is what's being offered in Genesis 8, that this offering is clearly an offering of atonement. To be more specific, it is a substitutionary offering. In other words, the animals die in place of the people. That's the clear language of this offering. And this word atonement has everything to do with the big theological term propitiation, which is the appeasing of the wrath of God. We must always remember, God is holy, and, and man is sinful, and thus man deserves God's righteous wrath. And throughout the Scriptures, atoning sacrifices are put forward to propitiate His wrath, to assuage the very wrath we Deserve. So, if you go back to Genesis 8, 20 through 22, Moses, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts Noah before us as a mediating priest, offering multiple burnt offerings as he stands as the head of the new creation that's still fallen and whose thoughts are still evil from his youth. 
And that seems evident when we read in verse 21 that when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, just like Leviticus 1, his anger at sin is pacified. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for, or better yet here, even though the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. So, so don't miss this. This is super important. The heart of man has not changed one bit at this point. This is, this is virtually the same language from chapter 6, verse 5, which was put forward as the reason for the flood. There we were told the reason for the flood was that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In chapter 8, then, it's not that man was changed through the flood. We, we didn't revert back to our pre-fall state, pre-fall purity after the flood, no. As a result of Noah's offering, which stands as the first in a long succession of atoning sacrifices, ultimately pointing to and culminating in the ultimate atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, as a result of this, the wrath of God was appeased. Through these sacrifices, sin is atoned for, and God promises that he will never again judge the world by way of the flood. And that's what he meant when he says, never again will I curse the ground. Uh, we need to be clear on that. That's not an overturning of the curse of the ground from Genesis 3. That's evident throughout the rest of this text, certainly the New Testament. Texts like Romans 8 make it clear. The earth is still cursed and waiting for that time, groaning for that time when Jesus comes again where it will be overturned. So, so this cursing of the earth spoken of here in 821 is referring to the flood. And the rest of the narrative demonstrates that God will not judge the world by way of flood ever again. In fact, in verse 22, we read, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. In other words, as long as the earth remains, normal cycles of the earth will not be touched again. It is, however, important to point out that implicit in that statement is the fact that the earth as we know it will not go on forever. The earth, as we know it, has, has, has a shelf life, as it were, with an end date that is fixed in the hidden counsel of God. Therefore, the appeasement of God's wrath that we see here is not the ultimate appeasement of the wrath of God. It, it's a type pointing us ahead to Jesus. The appeasing of God's wrath here is specifically tied to the wiping out of the world through the flood and starting over again. That, he says, he'll never do again. The whole earth will, however come to a final and climactic end, as made clear in the rest of the Bible, where God will ultimately and finally judge all who have refused to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. And we'll come back to that point shortly. For now, we mustn't miss that because of Noah's mediatorial work, as he stands before God as priest and offers sacrifices, Noah brings rest as prophesied by Noah's father Lamech when he named him Noah back in chapter 5. I want to read you a quote from T.D. Alexander that I think is helpful, referring to the pleasing aroma of 821. Alexander says, quote, the Hebrew term for pleasing, nekoach, conveys the idea of rest and tranquility. It's related to the name Noah or Noah, so nekoach, Noah, is 
It's related to the name Noah and is probably used here in order to remind the reader of Lamech's remarks in Genesis 5.29. It also has the sense of soothing. The burnt offering soothes God's anger at human sin. So although human nature has not been changed by the flood, God's attitude has changed, end quote. So Noah's sacrifices, while, while often overlooked, are a vital part of this narrative. The blood of goats and bulls allows God to pass over the sin of sinful man and not wipe out the earth again. And it's important that we see that the next two points really flow from this one. Now we see Noah standing before us as the new Adam, and here God is going to make clear the mission man is to fulfill and then describe the covenant that he has made. First, the mission, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you were here when we covered Genesis 1 through 2, you'll recall that Adam and Eve's mission was laid out very clearly in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 28, and chapter 2, 15. Specifically, they were to serve as God's vice regents, filling the earth with the image of God by being fruitful and multiplying. They were to have dominion over the whole earth and, and subdue it, bringing everything in subjection to God. They, they were to rule the world for the glory of God. In the garden, they were to work it and they were to guard it. And while I need to be quick here, I want to point out that these passages are sometimes used for something that they can't possibly mean. This original mandate from Genesis 1 through 2 is used by some to argue that the mission of the church is that we be little Adams and go about and accomplish Adam's original purpose. It is said, for example, that we should be about the work of creating a new and better world. We should be about the work of changing culture by doing social justice, good deeds, and the like. Adam, it is said, was given the task of building God's world, and thus we Christians are to be about this task, bettering, perfecting the world by way of culture making, by way of cultural renewal. And, and, and you should hear in that that evangelism takes a back seat to culture making if evangelism gets a seat at all. And there's a major problem with this teaching, not least the fact that it completely downplays Jesus' great commission. But even in our text this morning, we see that there's a major problem with this teaching. Here, we are post-fall, post-flood, and God reiterates part of what is often referred to as the creation mandate from chapter 1, what I'm calling man's mission. But, but when we look at the reiteration, we mustn't miss the fact that the mission is now altered because of sin. First, we saw when we covered Genesis 2 through 3 that while man was commissioned to keep and guard the garden completely failed, right? And so the king of kings took that job and he gave it to somebody else, namely the cherubim at the end of Genesis 3, who would guard the garden and the tree of life. What's more, when we come to this passage, while filling the earth through procreation is still part of man's mission, we know that because of the fall, that will now come with much pain. We also have several other graphic reminders that things have gone terribly wrong since the first giving of the mission. 
Adam's dominion of the animals is reasserted here. But notice that the animals will no longer simply follow him in the garden like they did when they just came to him to be named by him. No, now dominion over the animals is a fearful domination, including the killing and partaking of the animals. And by the way, that's not put forward as a, as a negative somehow. It's just a difference. God says, take and eat. So what God says can't be a negative, but it is different. What's more, the idea of lex talionis is now here for us. Life for a life is now necessary. There's now need for the institution of a sword-wielding government of some sort, one that will have the authority to take a life because man's thoughts and actions are so wicked. And though the image of God was marred at the fall, there's still vestiges of that image. And anyone who rises up against the image of God is ultimately rising up against God himself. And thus God says that person must be put to death. That's why most governments throughout the history of the world have had some sort of death penalty for murder. Right? Whether they realize it or not, it's because God said so. It is a biblical idea. Perhaps the most important difference, though, is the fact that subduing the earth, bringing the whole earth under the control of God, is no longer seen in the post-fall mission, pointing to the fact that the goal of the original mission is no longer attainable for man because every intention of the thought of his heart is only evil continually. In fact, if you fast forward to the New Testament, which we have to do, living at this point in salvation history, it's clear that the role of subduing the whole world will be fulfilled in none other than the Lord Jesus, the last Adam, so says Romans 5, who came to be both priest and king, dying for his people, and who will ultimately, when he comes again, finally subdue the world, bringing the whole world under the control of God when every single knee bows to King Jesus. That being said, and we talked about this back in chapter 1, our role as elucidated in the mission given to Noah and those who come after him in light of the coming of Jesus, is to be fruitful and multiply and have children, yes, but the way we fill the earth with the image of God is fulfilling the great commission given by Jesus. We are to tell anyone and everyone we come across about Jesus. We're to tell them of the wrath of God coming upon all who rebel against God, and, and that God in His grace sent His Son Jesus to come and to die on our, in our place as the ultimate atoning sacrifice. Therefore, we must believe in Him and submit to Him as our King. And that's not to say there's no place for good works as Christians. Look at uh, 1 Peter 2, where our lives are tied to our mission. But, but it is to say that the mission of the church is to make disciples. Our mission is not to be culture makers. That, that, that could be an implication of the mission. If God is kind and we get to live through a revival or, or another awakening, and so lost people get saved and then saved people go into workplaces where they were once lost, yes, things start to change. But our mission, post-fall, post-flood, post-cross, is to Fill the world with the image of God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby people's lives are changed, and as Paul says in Colossians 3, that they are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. And there's so much more I'd love to say on that, but we've got to keep going because I know time's already running short. Noah gets off the boat and offers burnt offerings to the Lord, thus appeasing the wrath of God as seen in the flood. 
And while man's heart has not changed, God will work with sinful man. He gives him a mission to fulfill in his time on earth. And now in this final section, we see God cut a covenant with Noah, really reiterating what he said in verses 21 through 22 of chapter 8. In verses 8 through 11, we see this covenant announced. And in verses 12 through 17, we're given the sign of the covenant. And we're going to really dig in more to this idea of biblical covenants, probably when we get to Abraham and try to put some biblical covenants together. But for now, let me just say a few things. Sometimes covenants are explained as a contract or agreement between two parties. And there's a degree of truth to that, though it doesn't really go far enough. Now, sometimes ancient covenants would be pretty one-sided, where one powerful party imposes the terms of the covenant on a weaker party. In terms of biblical covenants, specifically those covenants between God and man, we see that these were also sometimes one-sided, as God is the only one whose integrity is put on the line. And that's, that's what we see here. We need to understand that a covenant means there's a commitment. There's a, there's a promise of some kind. And someone is bound to do something. And in this covenant, it's God who binds himself to act a certain way. God is here putting his own integrity on the line. God is the one making the promise. And unlike, say, the Mosaic covenant, there are no stipulations of this covenant for Noah and his seed to follow. This covenant is all of grace. This covenant is all of God. God is here promising, even in the midst of the sinfulness of man, he's promising that he'll never again wipe out the world by way of flood. He knows the intention of man's heart is still evil. Yet he promises not to send another flood. He gives a sign of the covenant. The sign of this covenant is a rainbow. And since the term in the original is just bow, same word for a warrior's bow, some say that this is a picture of God hanging a a warrior's bow up in the sky as a signal of never again firing like the darts of judgment down at the world. I personally don't think the text specifies that, and we do clearly see acts of God's judgment as this narrative continues to unfold. I think what's going on here is that like circumcision in in God's covenant with Abraham, the rainbow is simply a sign of of the covenant. It's a sign that we're to see that reminds us what's happened. Thus, thus when Noah, when we look up in the sky and we see the storm clouds, when we, when we feel the rain, when we see the sun start to come through the rain clouds and then the rainbow form, we're to remember and can absolutely rest assured that God will never overflow the world with water by way of judgment. God here makes this glorious promise to Noah and his seed never again to wipe out the world. And I should point out that while we see multiple covenants throughout the Bible, at one level we can say that all of these covenants are moving in the same direction. In other words, all of God's covenants are ultimately and finally fulfilled in Christ. All of God's covenants
covenants are yes and amen in Jesus. It, it, it really all goes back to Genesis 3.15 where God promised to redeem mankind through the seed of the woman and to one day completely overturn the curse. And we see that here with this covenant. Notice in verse 9 that God specifically says, I will establish my covenant with you and your seed after you. See, this, this whole narrative culminating in God's covenant with Noah and his seed is again pointing us ahead to Jesus, who Paul tells us very clearly in Galatians 3 is the long-awaited seed of the woman. And think about the whole passage. God judges the world through the flood because of human sin, and yet he saves Noah and those who are with him on the boat He saves them through judgment. Through the flood, God demonstrates his justice and his grace. Right? He shows his justice in condemning rebels. He shows his grace in saving Noah and those on the boat with him who were still sinners. Then Noah steps out of the ark stands as a mediating priest, and he offers those burnt offerings, resulting in God's covenant never again to destroy the earth through the flood. Thus, through sacrifice, God again shows his justice and his grace. Justice in that something has to die because of sin. Grace in that he passes over the sins of the people as the animals stand as a substitute. But, but, but given that the book of Hebrews makes it clear that the blood of goats and bulls cannot ultimately take away sin, we know that all of these Old Testament sacrifices are always pointing ahead to the ultimate sacrifice. They're pointing ahead to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, who God would put forward climactically as the ultimate sacrifice, where he would climactically show his justice and his grace coming together. Jesus, the greater than Noah, serves as our great high priest, offering up the perfect sacrifice of himself, resulting in the forgiveness of all of our sin and the glory of God on display as he upholds his perfect justice and his perfect grace. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Some theologians call this the center of the whole Bible, not because you open to the middle and that's where you land, but because everything really comes together here. Starting in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is made right with God, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. So God puts Jesus forward propitiation to assuage his wrath God puts forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith listen close this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins what's that talking about I take that to be the sins of the Old Testament saints right he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be this language is so important that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, for those in Christ, we have received God's grace only because Jesus' blood was shed in our place. In the first instance, 
The animals died, resulting in a degree of peace with God, with a promise of ultimate peace with God. God would never again flood the world. They, they could be confident in that. But it was, it was pointing forward because people still sin and still deserve the wrath of God. And the wrath of God will be poured out on sinners. And Jesus comes and serves as both priest and sacrifice, offering up himself so that we can have ultimate peace with God. And so by way of application, let me speak to any here this morning who might not yet be trusting in Christ. I would plead with you today to consider Jesus, who he is and what he's done. See, you, like me, like all of us in this room, are a sinner. And because of sin, judgment is coming. But God is a God of amazing grace. And so we don't have to undergo that judgment. Jesus has taken the punishment of any and everyone who trusts in him, trusts in what he has accomplished on the cross. And so, friend, I would plead with you, look to Christ, believe on Christ, even today. For believers, we know that Jesus came, fulfilled the entire Old Testament, and serves as both priest and sacrifice, offering up himself so that we now have peace with God, so that we do not stand under the righteous wrath of God. Praise God, because Jesus did that for us. And there's so much we could say here by way of application because this grace applies to every single aspect of our lives. But since we don't have time to think of a hundred reasons, let's end on three quickly. First, we stand before God by grace, by grace alone. By grace, if you're in Christ, you will never undergo a single drop of God's wrath, but instead we will spend all eternity with him in the new heaven and new earth. That's why we sing amazing grace. And as a result, we should be the most thankful people on the planet, Right? should thank God for our salvation. And yet I think sometimes it's something that we take for granted. Perhaps a helpful exercise is to wake up each morning, not just thank God for another day, for breath, but start each day thanking God for our salvation. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I sinned yesterday, and I'm in deeper debt to your mercy today than I was then. Thank you for saving a wretch like me. Thank God for the good things. Thank God even in difficult things. As we know that ultimately, we don't get what we deserve. Second, closely related, we stand before God by grace. He went to great lengths to save us. Thus, our hearts should overflow with love for God. And yet, we all know Sometimes it doesn't, right? And if it doesn't, we want to not be content to stay there. If our, if our hearts aren't overflowing with love for God, let, let, let's be clear. That's because of us and not because of God. God's unchanging. He hasn't moved. He hasn't sinned against us. We know that. He's good all the time. But we also know that our hearts sort of move around from thing to thing. Our hearts are a follower, right? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. 
And I think all too often our treasure gets focused on something else. And so a little surprise that our love for God doesn't feel all that strong. And so again, we want to focus on who God is and what He's done. We, we want to take every opportunity like we're doing right now to be around God's ordinary means of grace that He has ordained to remind us of basic, basic things But we need to hear over and over again because our hearts are so fickle. And so we want to be around one another, be around the Word so that our hearts are full of the love with God that we should have. Finally, if we've been shown this much grace, and by the way, if you don't think that you have received a mountain of grace, I would just put before you, you don't yet understand the gospel. For any sinner, I don't care if you grew up in a Christian home and you were a pretty good kid, any sinner forgiven by God has been shown mountains upon mountains of grace. And if we've been shown this much grace, should we not show grace to others, right? If we've been forgiven by God and saved from what we deserve, how can we possibly withhold forgiveness from those we think have wronged us and instead want to show them wrath? Brothers and sisters, we've been shown amazing grace, and we want to be dispensers of this grace as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we now turn our attention to the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that as we walk through this together, that you would indeed restir a thankfulness within our hearts. Rekindle a deeper, more profound love for Christ. For we know that our salvation is all of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.